Welcome to Debrief by MedPro Group, an inside look at some of the 500,000 plus medical malpractice claims handled by our company. In this podcast, our claims experts share the interesting, unique, and often intriguing elements of cases they have handled. Ready? Let's begin. Welcome listeners to this episode of Debrief. Today we have with us Rebecca Pelkey. Rebecca, thanks for joining us on today's episode. Hi there. So Rebecca, at the start of every episode, we like to take a few moments to get to know our guests a little bit more. So if you wouldn't mind, could you just take a few minutes to share with our listeners a little bit about your professional background? Sure. So I have an insurance background. I've been with uh, two other insurance carriers before coming on board with MedPro, and I was with them about 21 years. And I've been with MedPro now 22 years, so I have about 43 years in the industry. Wow. So it's a long time. <laughs> yeah. No, it sounds like you've got an excellent background, and I'm sure it's going to serve us well as we dig into today's case. I've done a little bit of reading on the case that you have for us, and it, it sounds like a very interesting situation. And so if you wouldn't mind, can you take a few minutes to give us a 10,000-foot overview of this case and what happened? Sure. So this case involved a 50-year-old married female with very dense breasts. Otherwise, she really had no comorbidities that would make her at higher risk for breast cancer, including no family history. She'd been undergoing regular mammograms on a regular basis with microcalcifications being noted. There was a small cluster that was diagnosed on a screening mammogram, and she was referred for a diagnostic mammogram where it was charted that grouped clusters of coarse microcalcifications are present in the right upper quadrant with associated mass. Now, this was a typographical error, as there was no mass associated with the microcalcifications. Our insurer documented that the calcifications were probably benign, and a repeat diagnostic mammogram was recommended in six months. The patient did obtain a second opinion from a surgical oncologist, and she was reassured there was nothing to worry about. She didn't have the recommended diagnostic mammogram for another 11 months. And this was read by another one of our insureds who noted a decrease in the benign appearing calcifications. And there were no suspicious findings noted. There was a routine annual mammography that was recommended. About 10 months later, the patient was seen by our gynecologist who performed a breast exam. And this gynecologist found no lumps or masses. One month after this, the patient underwent another regularly scheduled mammogram, and this now showed a focal area of increased density in the upper outer quadrant of the right breast that had not been on previous examinations. The mass measured 2.7 by 2.0 centimeters with irregular margins. He also noted that three enlarged lymph nodes were present. A biopsy was performed of the area, and this confirmed invasive ductal carcinoma stage 3. The tumor was triple negative and was felt to be very aggressive. So she began treatment with chemotherapy, but the tumor didn't respond. So she underwent a right modified mastectomy and then radiation. So she was considered cancer-free, but was taking tamoxifen continuing over three years and was being worked up for a thyroid mass, which was felt to be unrelated to her breast cancer diagnosis. Four years after the original diagnosis, the patient was seen for a walnut-sized lump on the right side of her neck that was diagnosed as being metastatic adenocarcinoma, and it was limited to level four lymph node. 
She began chemotherapy with a resolution of the mass and no other findings of metastatic disease was present. She had complications from the chemotherapy, including neutropenia, but she continued to work. She began a clinical trial with thrombocytopenia being present. She became very weak and was in a wheelchair and on oxygen due to other issues. And this time was right before our trial when she was on oxygen and very weak and in a wheelchair. So anyway, in hindsight, our insureds did not see any evidence of the cancer on any of the images. And our experts agreed there were no masses present on either of the mammograms read by our insured. Now the plaintiff's expert testified that a cluster of five or more calcifications mandates a biopsy. And a reduction in the amount of calcifications is an indication that there is cancer present, that a tumor is taking over the calcifications and a biopsy should have been recommended. Our experts remain strong that abiding by plaintiff's expert's mandate would result in unnecessary biopsies. So the plaintiff's alleged earlier diagnosis would have improved her outcome and used the fact that she had a recurrence in her cancer within three years as evidence she would recur again and die from her cancer. Okay, so there's quite a bit to chew on there. So just to recap and make sure I've got this correct, it sounds like initially there was no evidence of cancer. A recommendation for follow-up was given. She kind of delayed in that. Then there was cancer found in her breast, which was treated. And then later on, there was a subsequent issue of thyroid cancer that developed. Do I have that correct? Yes, so she had a thyroid cancer, which was totally unrelated. But then after that, she did have a positive lymph node for cancer, and that was felt to be metastatic disease. So that was related to the breast cancer. Okay, so if I understand this correctly, the crux of the allegations against the MedPro insured was a failure to diagnose cancer and a failure to recommend additional testing to detect the cancer earlier on, correct? That is correct. So really what the plaintiffs maintained was in the initial mammogram that showed some coarse microcalcifications that because there were more than five, that our doctor should have sent the patient for a biopsy. Okay. So during the course of the case, was it determined why the MedPro insured didn't send the plaintiff in for an additional biopsy? Well, I mean, because there wasn't anything to biopsy, especially in women with dense breasts like this. I mean, if you send every woman that has calcifications like this with clusters more than five, you would probably be biopsying. I'm trying to think how many unnecessary biopsies there would be. Uh, it would be a huge number and it would result in increased morbidity to the patients as well as scarring and just unnecessary procedures. So there was absolutely no indication that the patient needed to be referred for a biopsy in this situation. Okay, and I can definitely appreciate not having unnecessary procedures performed, especially ones that could result in scarring and increased morbidity. But I also heard that a follow-up was recommended for the patient and the patient delayed that follow-up. How did that play into this case? Well, initially, we thought that it might play into it because she waited probably four months later to have the mammogram than was recommended. But even then, there was nothing there to be seen. So when she did have the mammogram, it still wasn't visible. So if she would have had it earlier, I don't think it would have made any difference in the outcome. Okay. So from here, 
Tell us how this case progressed. Did it go to trial? Did it go to mediation? What happened? Well, it's kind of a complicated question because we followed, you know, when we first got the case, and particularly involving the alleged failure to diagnose or failure to refer the patient, we look at the imaging and it's like we scrutinize it so closely. Is there anything there? In this case, there was nothing there. So if it would have been a case, it's like, gosh, in hindsight, now that we know there's cancer there, we can see something. But that wasn't this case. So very early, we took a very aggressive stance that we're going to defend this case. And indeed, our initial expert looked at it. Nothing is seen. Uh, we obtained a um, causation and damage expert. Our expert is double boarded in pathology and oncology. And before the patient had a recurrence, he was very strong that she had a normal life expectancy and that there was no change in her outcome as a result of this alleged delay in diagnosis. So we were ready to try the case. And indeed, we actually had a trial date. And right before our first trial date is when the patient had a recurrence. And that changed everything. And we had to stop, reassess, get the matter reviewed again by our experts and take another look at things. So when that happened and the experts reevaluated the case, what was their determination? So our standard of care expert had no change at all because, again, there's nothing there to be seen. She was very, very strong. But our causation and damage expert now had to modify his opinions because he was basing it on, you know, if she's cancer-free at this time. She wasn't quite five years cancer-free, but because she's cancer-free or free, she has a normal life expectancy, and everything that's going to be incurred would be incurred no matter what. When she did have that recurrence, he had to change his opinions. He now no longer felt that she had a normal life expectancy. He now felt she had a reduced life expectancy because of the recurrence. And so that made the damages much greater than what we had initially evaluated. Okay, so I understand the change in the damage expert's opinion of the change in damages, but help the listeners understand how that change in potential damages affects the insurer's liability. Well, I think it's an interesting question because it really doesn't change the liability situation, but it does increase the exposure. And in this case, our doctors had low limits. So when the patient recurred, the plaintiffs retained a life care planner who opined as to future damages that were in excess of our doctor's policy limits. And so they began to be fearful of there being an excess verdict that would cause them to be personally responsible somehow for the patient's damages. So that really changed the assessment of MedPro as well, because now we're not looking at a case that's potentially evaluated within our doctor's limits. Now we're looking at a case that is evaluated in excess of the limits. And so we had to take a different approach. We had to look at the case a little different. And so a case that we were ready to defend completely, we now had to consider for resolution. Okay. So I know that on most of MedPro's policies, we give insureds full consent to settle. And for our listeners who may not know what that means, when a claim comes in against an insured, MedPro has to ask the insured if we have their permission to settle a claim. And so my question is, initially, did the insured not give us permission to settle? But then over time, 
they were more open to settlement? Was there a change over time on this case? Absolutely. It changed as the case progressed. Initially, our doctors were very strong that they wanted this case defended and they would not consent to settle. And even when we had demands that were in excess of the policy limits, they said, no, we do not want to pay anything on this case. We didn't do anything wrong. But then when the patient had a recurrence of her cancer, and particularly when she we took her a second deposition of her, and now she's in a wheelchair, and she's in, on oxygen, and she's very, very sympathetic. They changed their consent. They changed their election of consent to now consent to settle and actually requested that MedPro attempt to resolve the case. You know, it's so good to hear that there is that flexibility in how to approach a case, because I can imagine that initially an insured may have a very strong position on not wanting to settle, on wanting to be defended. But as the case progresses, as the facts emerge and the risk profile changes, and upon advisement from their defense counsel and from MedPro, the insured may see that giving permission to settle may be a better option for them. So you had mentioned that the plaintiff had a very sympathetic position being in a wheelchair, being on oxygen, How did that sympathetic position play out in the defense counsel's strategy, MedPro strategy? How did you move forward? Sure. So in this case, we were right before trial. I think we ended up resolving the case perhaps a week before trial. So um, what we were going to do and what was our plan was at the trial, while you are interviewing potential jurors, the very first thing you say is that you cannot allow sympathy to affect your deliberations in this case. You have to be the lady justice with a blindfold on and you cannot allow sympathy to cloud your judgment. You have to find that the doctors deviated from the standard of care before you ever award damages. And it's a very, you know, kind of tight tight rope to walk because you don't want to make them increase, you know, make the jury the potential jury to really start thinking about sympathy, but you also have to, it's kind of like the elephant in the room. You have to address it. Here's this patient who's sitting in front of them in a wheelchair and on oxygen, and you have to get them to see her in the very beginning, acknowledge that she's very sympathetic, but that they can't allow that sympathy to cloud their judgment. Right. And I can imagine that that is a very hard and very fine line to walk because As you're presenting that concept, you don't want to come across as callous, but simply convey that the jury is there to determine if the doctor met the standard of care or did not meet the standard of care. And in the medical malpractice industry, we know that a doctor can do everything right and bad outcomes still happen. And while... Right. And that's, that's, I'm sorry to interrupt you, because that's another thing that we deal with, particularly in delaying diagnosing cancer or failure to diagnose cancer cases. We put it front and center that we didn't give the patient the cancer, that the patient had a very bad diagnosis, and sometimes bad things happen to good people, but that it wasn't our doctor's fault that she had cancer and that the cancer she ended up having was a very aggressive and bad cancer. So we get that in front of the jury very early in the case. 
Right. So you said that it was a little bit before the trial that the situation changed and the insured became open to a settlement. MedPro was more open to a settlement. So how did the case progress from there? Did we go to trial? Did we go to mediation? What were the next steps? Well, this is an interesting case because as the case progressed, we mediated, didn't resolve the case. We actually participated in non-binding arbitration and we got a complete defense verdict. The arbitrator found there was nothing there. Our insurance did not deviate from the standard of care and he awarded no damages to the patient. So, you know, we had, we were armed with these things and the plaintiff had been in excess of our policy limits throughout the case. Now it was right before trial that the plaintiff reduced their demand to below the limits. And we did decide to go ahead and resolve the case. So we did resolve the case for less than the limits. And I think a lot of these things factored into the plaintiffs agreeing to accept, accept less than limits from the case. And I think part of it is that non-binding arbitration in which they got a zero and you know our very strong defenses that they agreed to take less. Okay, so let me throw another question out at you here because as I'm listening to this case, I hear the defendant initially didn't want to settle. They didn't believe they did anything wrong. They didn't want to see anything paid out. But then the patient has a reoccurrence of cancer, becomes very sympathetic, and the insured becomes open to a settlement because they don't want to be held liable for for damages in excess of their policy limits, which is understandable. But then there's non-binding arbitration and non-binding arbitration comes back in favor of the defendant. So with that in hand, why did the defendant and MedPro and Defense Counsel still decide to move forward with a settlement instead of switching back to a more defense-oriented approach and trying to get the case settled without any kind of liability payment? You know, it's not an easy question to answer because there were many factors that came into determining that we were going to resolve the case. Um, the non-binding arbitration is not admissible. Really, it just kind of acts as an impetus to get the cases to move off of their positions. In this case, we won. And there would be certain costs and fees associated if the plaintiffs went to trial and did not get a more than nothing, if they didn't get a, a plaintiff's verdict. So that can be an impetus to accept less or to negotiate the case. But I think as the case progressed, because early on, the patient wasn't so sympathetic. We actually had surveillance of her where she's shopping, driving, going about her business in a completely normal fashion. She doesn't appear to be affected at all. It wasn't until right before the second trial that she had decided to undergo chemotherapy that caused her to become deconditioned. And I think that's the reason she was in a wheelchair and so very sympathetic. So, you know, before we were looking at a patient who was going to be sitting in front of a jury looking just fine, like there was nothing wrong with her. And now there's a change. Now she's going to be this very, very sympathetic factor. So that caused things to change. But I have to say, 
if the plaintiffs had continued to demand policy limits, we would have taken this case to trial. And I think we would have won. It's just one of those cases that I still think about, even though it's been a long time since it has resolved, because I know our doctors didn't do anything wrong. They know they didn't do anything wrong, but we had to resolve the case because of sympathy and because of a fear of an excess verdict. You know, this case is a great example of the role that insurance plays in American society. One thing that I've learned over my 25 years of insurance is that insurance is a major driver of the American economy because what insurance does is it allows businesses, professionals to venture out into the world and offer their services to their communities with a level of protection from financial ruin because of mistakes or unfortunate outcomes. And it also allows the community to engage with these businesses and professionals with some level of security of being protected against the mistakes of those businesses. Now, even though the insured wasn't able to walk away with no payment to the plaintiff like they originally wanted, do you think that they would have viewed the MedPro policy as fulfilling this societal role for them in this case? I do. I know our insureds were very, how can I put it, almost distraught because they know they didn't do anything wrong, but they also wanted to protect their personal assets. Mm -hmm. And they knew that they didn't have a lot of insurance because they had elected to have lower limits than a lot of other physicians have. And so they wanted the case settled because they were worried about their personal assets. I think had they had higher limits, we would have stuck to our guns. We would not attempted to resolve the case and we would have defended this case at trial. Rebecca, that's a great takeaway for this episode that the amount of limits that insureds decide to have do impact the flexibility that they have when they're faced with a challenging trial. Now, large limits will allow you to sometimes mount a more aggressive defense, but at the same time, large limits can also put you at risk for larger verdicts against you. There is definitely a balance and a give and take in regards to the limits that are selected. And that's why it's so important for insureds to work very closely with their insurance advisors to make sure that they are choosing the proper limit for their situation. So ultimately, do you think that the insured was satisfied with how MedPro handled their claim? Yes, I think they were satisfied because they didn't have to go to trial. They didn't have to have that anxiety of sitting every day for two weeks with this very sympathetic person and the stress of looking at that jury every day and hearing the plaintiff criticize their care and knowing it was over. It was over, it's resolved for within their limits, and they don't have to worry about it anymore. So yes, I think they were happy. It's one of those kind of bittersweet happinesses, though, because they know they did nothing wrong, uh, but they also know that they consented to settle and the case was resolved just to avoid the risk of a bad outcome. Sure, those are all great points. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this case with us. 
I hope you had a great time. And honestly, I'm looking forward to having you back on another episode in the future. Sounds great. Appreciate it very much. It was a lot of fun looking back at this case and uh, uh, remembering the case progressing and all the, the things that occurred through the life of the case. It went on for five years. Wow, five years. I'm sure that played into the insured's decision-making process as well. You know, there's a lot of value in being able to just move on with your life. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you again, Rebecca. And listeners, join us again in a few weeks for our next episode of Debrief. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Debrief. I've been your host, Travis Langford. If you have enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. For more information about MedPro, including healthcare liability insurance quotes and risk management resources, please visit us at medpro.com. A special thank you to the MedPro Group claims, legal, and marketing teams for researching, screening, and reviewing episode content and providing marketing collateral and support for this podcast. Technical direction, music, pre- and post-production by Travis Langford. This podcast does not constitute legal or medical advice and should not be construed as rules for establishing a standard of care. Because the facts applicable to your situation may vary, or the laws applicable in your jurisdiction may differ, please contact your attorney or other professional advisors if you have any questions related to your legal or medical obligations, rights, state or federal laws, contract interpretation, or other legal questions. MedPro Group is the marketing name used to refer to the insurance operations of the Medical Protective Company, Princeton Insurance Company, Plyco Inc., and MedPro RRG Risk Retention Group. All insurance products are underwritten and administered by these and other Berkshire Hathaway affiliates, including National Fire and Marine Insurance Company. Product availability is based upon business and or regulatory approval and or may differ among companies. Copyright 2023, MedPro Group Inc., all rights reserved.